This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, welcome back to The Forging Table. The mission of Undaunted Life is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So at The Forging Table, you'll see a group of regular guys forging spiritual resilience by digging into God's Word, and we're welcoming all of you to come along on that journey with us. That's Matt, that's Zach, that's Derek. Guys, we are going to be digging into 1 Timothy 6. We are wrapping up this letter from Timothy to, or from Paul to his pupil, Timothy. And as with every single one of these chapters, I feel like there's so much here. There's so much that we're going to have to leave unsaid and unspoken about, but I feel like it's straight up fire from the very, very beginning. And, um, I just want to read the first five verses of this. And I mean, we could camp out here the entire time, but man, there's still some, some great stuff. And then there's, you know, to foreshadow, there's the most misquoted scripture in all of scripture also in first Timothy six. So we're going to get there, but let me read the first five verses here. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teachings that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understanding nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction on people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Woo-wee-woo. Like that is, man, that is scorched earth stuff right there. But and I'll, I'll let y'all talk about anything there because there's so much there just in five verses. But right there, right about in the middle in verse four, for quarrels about words. So when we looked at, I think we were talking about this, I don't know, maybe it was on chapter four, or chapter five of First Timothy. We were talking about people that were looking at, at individual words. And I just gotta be honest with you. If you come out in 2023, and say that you have found a new meaning to a word that we've all agreed upon the meaning of that word for thousands of years, I don't believe you. Okay? So that is my default mechanism is I don't believe you and your bullcrap and your incredibly loose liberal description of what that word means. Because when people do this with the Bible, people that are typically deconstructing, they'll deconstruct They'll find a word or two that don't actually mean what we thought it meant for all these years. And isn't it interesting, they always land on the liberal side of the ledger, on the left side of the ledger. They don't look at a word and become more conservative and more traditional in their understanding of a particular word or something like that. It all leans to a worldview that is downstream from postmodernism. Marxism, communism, critical theory, whatever your ism is that you're, that you're into. But right there, when we talk about the, the quarrels about words, and then right when you go down into verse five, that these people are deprived of the truth. Like it's these people, it's like these people don't know that they've been deceived, but now they will die on the hill of whatever new uh, ideology and philosophy that they've made up for themselves. So just fire from the beginning right here. Oh man. Um, I think. Again, I think Paul's speaking to just the nature of these these people, these types of people get a foothold in the body of Christ because I think we're just naturally looking for that next thing. Like, what is it that, oh my gosh, this guy has something, he's got a new revelation, he's got something new, new and shiny. Yeah, that's what I got too. And 
like we're, I think we're, we're just, we're just wired that way to like, look for that. And like, like we were talking about a few episodes ago, like we're, we're designed to worship something. It's either God or something else. And that, that new shiny thing, like offers us some like, um, adrenaline, I guess for lack of a better word, like, but yeah, we're always looking for that new shiny thing. It's, I absolutely agree, Matt. So um, that section, we talked about this earlier in First Timothy, is this is evidence of a larger spiritual battle that's going on, right? 100%. And that is we have a real spiritual enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to pull us away from the truth of the gospel, and um, he uses false truths or fractional false truths to to pull people away from the real truth. And then they have, and, and that reminded me, right? They're always puffed up with conceit because that, that's, I, I put new understanding instead of new revelation, Matt, in my notes. Um, but it's the same thing. We talked about it. If you go back and listen to our Galatians conversation, it's the same thing. In Galatians, it is, hey, if people come to you with a new gospel that's different than the old way, a new understanding, a new revelation, it's... Um, it's because they are puffed up with conceit and they are selling a lie because they see, well, I'm the only one. I have this proprietary knowledge that God revealed to me. Therefore, I can gain something out of this, whether it's um, popularity, whether it's influence, whether it's access. I have a new revelation and understanding. Who else has? I'm going to trademark it. I'm going to, um, and then I'm going to use it for my own personal gain. Yeah, I, you know, bringing it to a personal level, especially when we talk about uh, newer Christians and having patience and seeing how they develop, I can say, uh, thank goodness that my family had a lot of patience because early on you get exposed to things and you start to develop these really aggressive opinions as you're processing these things. And that comes out in conversations at home. And you find yourself quickly going from the territory of trying to understand something to trying to convince somebody against their will that they should be doing something very quickly. Right. And I found myself in that place a few times and it doesn't feel right. And it feels like we're, we're getting into, you know, almost like a, a, a devilish territory. So I think we have to put that in perspective. One thing we see here as well, when it talk, talks about, you know, deprived of the truth, and we end verse five with imagining that godliness is a means of gain. I, I couldn't help but think about people that are Christian influencers, um, that are, you know, very Christian on Instagram and they're traveling around the speed. And the thing is, is like people would put me in that same category. They'll put me, Oh, you're in the Christian influencer category, but it's these people that have a lot of flash and they know what buzz buzzwords to say, like on TikTok or, you know, what other social media platforms or something like that, but there's nothing there. Like it's just this vapid, like nonsensical approach. It's kind of like this new agey thing where you say Jesus every now and then, or you wear a you know, shirt that has Yahweh misspelled. And it's just like, Oh, like that's somehow going to like make everybody think you have your, you know, your Christian bona fide squared away. But it just even goes back to, to verse three. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, again, it can be a different doctrine when it's incomplete. And I think Derek, what you were saying about like things that have a little bit of truth in them, so you can sneak in the rest of the lie. It's the Trojan horse of, of particular things in theology. And so you have these people that have these enormous platforms, sell a ton of books, and they say nothing. They say nothing. And they don't actually bring people closer to a true intangible gospel. It's to something that they just kind of made up. 
Well, one of the things you said, like a, a different doctrine, but Paul also is, he's specific in his words here. He doesn't just say that don't agree with the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says the sound, sound words. words. Yep. And so I could say words that Jesus said, which we see all the time. You see people saying, well, Jesus said this, or Jesus said that. But if you compare it to the sound words that Jesus said, you're got a lot more scrutiny to live up to than just saying what Jesus said. Because if you don't, if you only give a half truth, you're still giving a lie. And I think that's, that to me was one of the biggest words that stuck out. There was a different doctrine and then sound words of Christ. So I think it's a watch out, right? It is, it's a watch out and it's a challenge to us as believers to test the teaching of, of those that we sit under uh, against God's word. Test it back to the word, test it back to the Bible and see what's and real. How, and how do we do that? Well, you have to know it. That, you have to read it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you got to spend time in it. Yeah. You can't just accept everything. Um, Zach, you said something that um, as a new believer, you'd get on something and then it turns into a quick conviction, right? Um, and I think it is, we, we push or we sell something that changed us. Oh man, I got an electric car. You need one and you need one and you need, and so it, it's something that maybe we feel changed or we're excited about. And then we start pushing it on and on and on. And that's where it, it, it begins to change. And then last thing here is, I think one of the things that we can use to test it, Matt, is um, this says, imagine that godliness is a means of great gain when godliness with contentment is the great gain. So it's not a means to an end. It is the end because he says in verse seven, we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of it. Yeah. So therefore, Hey, if you're using the gospel as a leverage to get you something else, yeah, that's not that's not the right method or goal or approach, right? It's such a it's such a neat transition when you go from understanding what something is saying to actually trying to do it, yep. right? So if you're sitting in front of somebody as, as somebody new to this, and you say, "We should be loving each other," you know, and you say it in that tone, and then you think about, well, how am I going to do this? And what that becomes eventually is you're not talking about it challenging yourself and you're actually doing it. And then the fruit of all of this comes out. That's been one of the biggest transitions for me. Well, uh, just what you said right there, I think can go, can speak to the unsound word of, of, of people trying to talk Jesus. And when Jesus says, love everybody, everybody has their own definition of that. Nobody wants to use God's definition of love. Well, Jesus, you're just a, you're a, you're a weird, hypocritical Christian. Jesus just told us to love everybody. I agree with that. I agree with that wholeheartedly, but I believe that love means something different than what you, not you, Derek, but like what, uh, you know, someone would say to a Christian, well, Jesus just said, love everybody, right? Shouldn't we just love everybody? Love is love. Well, God is very specific in how he defines love. Love rebukes and reproves. God's word is love. And the word of God reproves and rebukes and teaches. And like, we don't get to define or put a new definition on what love is. And that, that's just a perfect example of what Paul's talking about here. Well, it's interesting with <clears throat> kind of how you worded that as well, is it's like societally people will look at a Christian and they'll say, well, aren't you supposed to love everybody? It's because we're so marinated in a Judeo-Christian ethic that even people that are non-Christians that don't read the book know enough about the nature and heart of God to where they can incorrectly try to rebuke you and how you're <laughs> acting like a Christian. But then the problem is, is we get people in modern Christianity that are in churches that are going to what any kind of church. It could be a seeker-sensitive church. It could be an old-school church. And they've created this pseudo-gospel 
of love, as if love is the ultimate ethic. No, it's God's glory actually is the ultimate ethic. God is love, but, and I guess you could say he is more love than he is wrath. That's why he gave us, you know, a pathway to him. But again, I think we get these people that they they don't want to reckon with anything that's dark or dirty or grimy because then they will finally realize that they're included in that category, that they are dark, they are grimy, they're dirty, like they're they're not able to be saved. And yet that that cheapens the gospel. I don't know if it was Augustine or Bonhoeffer, they were talking about cheap grace. Yeah, Bonhoeffer. Well, yeah, yeah. So it's, it cheap, yeah, grace, it's yeah. cheap grace. It's like, again, I know we, we harp on this a lot, but it's like, if you don't understand the the full level of your own depravity. If you look at other people like, well, I've never murdered anybody. And you, you look at murderers and it's like, well, you're implying two things when you say that, that you're somehow better than that person. And then that person's unsavable. And it's just like, neither one of those things are true when you look at it, because, you know, God sees the the top of the cup that's filled with sin. He doesn't see it from the side. Like he sees binary sin or non-sinner saved, not saved, like covered by the blood of my son or not. But, you know, in society, we love to compare people's cups from the side to see who has more sin or who has less sin. Well, speaking of cheap grace, I think Bonhoeffer's point was your, your attendance in church does not satisfy the just bill that you have to pay for your sins. And you can't walk to heaven and say, here's my church membership card. I got it. I got baptized when I was an infant. Do I get in now? Is God... God looks at that and goes, no, <laughs> no. And I think that's what Bonhoeffer's talking about, cheap grace. And that, like, that's where, that's where like the opposite of that is obviously legalism. And then, but cheap grace is basically antinomianism where it's, I, I have been saved, so I don't have to follow the law. And that's a, that's a reaction to this legalistic, I've got to do everything. My works get me in to heaven. But then when we, when we come to a place of cheap grace or I don't have to do anything, we become even more legalistic in that approach because that's the hill that we're willing to die on of, I'm so legalistic in the fact that I don't have to do anything that I become more legalistic than the legalistic person that I'm. That didn't make it. I just, I just went. I just went. <laughs> we all totally followed you, Matt. Yeah. Yeah. Clear. <laughs> Kyle, to your point though. Okay. So if, um, if that person comes and says, well, God's love, so you have to love me, right? It, it, it goes back to, you've talked in several other of these chapters about being prepared, being prepared. Um, and that is physically prepared. That is spiritually and mentally prepared. And that person in an odd way, right, has, is more prepared to justify their own actions than most of the Christians that we know to properly rebuke something or someone in their actions. Because if I'm doing something and I want to justify it, I'll, I'll mentally justify it and I'll find a way to justify it and construct an argument for it so that if anybody comes towards me at all, I have a pre-prepared argument for it. But the opposite is not necessarily true. We do not purposefully, and, and I think that in some ways we should, be so, I guess, um, aware and knowledgeable and so familiar with God's word so that if we were to run into that instant, we know exactly what we're going to do, what we're going to say, what it's based on. Kyle, this goes back to um, at the church, you, you prepared a message about how to overcome the top 20 pro-abortion arguments, right? Because people who are pro-abortion have a tendency to prepare and justify their behavior 
a lot more than people who are pro-life and anti-abortion are to prepare to rebuke somebody who is pro-abortion. Yeah. And when you gave me credit for two extras, it was only 18. Oh, sorry. But, <laughs> but, but the thing about it is, is you're exactly right that people, people think, oh, I can just say I'm a Christian or pull out my, I'm a Christian card yep. and then I won't have to argue. It's like, sorry, society doesn't accept that. So again, these people that don't think you should push back darkness and culture, it's like, again, you're going against the dictates of some of the greatest giants of faith and the things that they push back in culture. So again, I have, I have my problems with Martin Luther King Jr.'s theology, but he used the Bible and the Judeo-Christian ethic as his basis for why black people in America should be treated just the same as everybody else, including white people. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer pushing back against the Nazis so far as to be part of a, um, you know, as of a coup attempt or trying to kill Hitler. You've got uh, William Wilberforce using the Bible. Like that was a guy that could have been prime minister of England. He could have been uh, the, the ruler of that entire country, but instead he decided basically to die penniless because he was going to chase down this idea that, hey, uh, all men are created equal in the eyes of God. Again, he, he wouldn't have worded it that way. They don't have a constitution written down on paper, you stupid uh, English fools. But like, <laughs> but like these, these one. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry, guys. But, the, <clears throat> but that's the thing is like those people think that we, we can't push back darkness and specifically do that as Christians. And then that leads to a level of unpreparedness. But mm -hmm. when you're unprepared, when you take you know, uh, a knife to a gunfight, you will lose 100% of the time. And so that's, again, why we try to do with Undaunted Life, equipping men to push back darkness, because there are going to be opportunities for you to be able to push back darkness. But if you don't have the knowledge, if you don't have the know-how, if you haven't practiced, well, the people on the other side, they've been practicing their antithetical, yeah. anti-moral, anti-God sentiments for a long time, and they're good at it. Well, and they're good with words and everything else. Well, even like you're talking about giants of the faith, even Jesus said, <clears throat> like, if we're talking about the sound word of words of Jesus, the doctrine of Jesus in Matthew 28, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, harking back to Psalm 2, ask and I will give the nations to you. I will put them under your feet. Do you think he forgot to ask? No. Yeah. And so he's giving us this mandate. I have been given authority. So take my authority that I am giving to you and go win, go win souls to the kingdom. You think that doesn't include Culture? Yeah. When the other thing is people, they will constantly point out that, you know, Jesus never really rebuked the, the culture that he lived in. He was rebuking the religious elites. It's like, moron! Who, were the, who was the leaders of the culture in his day? It was the Sadducees, the Pharisees, yeah. and the Jewish Sanhedrin. Like, those were the people. Yes, it was a Roman culture, but the Romans gave power to the Jewish people so that they wouldn't have conflict, which was part of the reason why they were even involved in the crucifixion of Jesus to begin with, because they had given a little bit of power, but the Jews themselves did not have the power to take life. And so they, they, you know, the Romans killed Jesus at the behest of the Jewish Sanhedrin. And so it's like, again, we twist ourselves up into pretzels to make sure that we can be cowards. And so it's like, I'm going to read the Bible to where I can challenge myself the least in terms of what life looks like right now. <laughs> You're absolutely right. And Kyle, I think you and I had a conversation about it, right? Is typically what, if you look into somebody's life who twists themselves up into a pretzel so that they can um, base what they're, they can justify their own behavior on the Bible. It's often because they don't want to think, they don't want to pray, they don't want to look all the way down the road, because if they go all the way to the very end, then they are faced with a decision. And decision one is, okay, Jesus is right and he's true. And if I accept that, that's going to take behavior modification change or difficult situations and difficult conversations in my life or not. I'm going to deny him, which means if he is real and true, 
then I have condemned myself to a life of hell by, by rejecting him. Right. How do you, mm. how do you package that in a way that's going to be effective? So, so one thing I'd say, and this is some stuff that I've been exposed to, if you're in a negotiating standpoint, for instance, it's been shown, like the FBI, for instance, has learned that you can't go with pure logic. You can't just hit somebody with an opinion that's hitting you back. That's pretty much what's happening in social media and most exchanges. So that person needs to feel understood and connected to. I think our first job is to listen, let them explain their position, and then ask how and what questions until we can get to a position. I think that's a great point. I think uh, one of the books on Kyle's 100, or the Undaunted Life's 100 books, is Greg Kokel's Tactics. And, I, and G- Jesus Perfect. is obviously great at asking questions and, and letting people you know, unpack their own beliefs. But um, I think that's important for us to remember. We can't, we can't go into someone's house who's an unbeliever and start hammering all their sin down. I think poster boards and signs work really well. Yeah, absolutely. As well. Yeah. yeah. But I, I standing I, outside and yelling, yeah. I think, yeah. I think <clears throat> to your point, like asking questions, like we're sowers, not harvesters. And we don't get the glory. God God is the harvester of souls. We're we're the ones that he uses to sow the fields. And we do that by asking good questions and and helping people understand. Like I have to understand my uh, that I'm a sinner. Derek can't tell me I'm a sinner. He can, but I'm the I'm ultimately the one that has to know I I'm a sinner on my best day. I am filthy rags before a holy and just God. Well, and you need to, you need to cause reflection in people. Yeah. Yep. And you typically don't cause reflection in people by barking at them Correct. and by yelling at them and by telling them how their logic is faulty, which is why, and this is cumbersome to, to do it this way, but in my how to you know, defeat the top 18 pro-abortion arguments. And whenever I do that, that speech live at churches, um, I'm teaching them what questions to ask back. So when someone says my body, my choice, it's not here are the facts. It's here are the questions to ask back. When someone says, what if she's raped? Uh, or what if it's incest? You know, you only care about the baby before they're born. What about my body, my choice? When they say these things, a lot of these things are slogans. They are stiff arms. And they're going to stiff arm you here, and then they're going to move the goalpost, and then they're going to stiff arm you over there, and then they're going to move the goalpost again. But the only way you can get somebody to reflect on their position is where you ask them a, either a clarifying question or a direct question that causes them to look at the foundations of their own argument. So if someone says, my body, my choice, you know, you could ask something along the lines of, as, as, are you aware that the, the human being inside the womb is a separate being than the mother? That it's a separate body, different DNA, different organs, different blood. Like you're asking questions and you're shining a light on their worldview and you're challenging them in that moment to be intellectually honest. And that's as far as you can go. You can't force them to be intellectually honest. What was it, this episode or last episode where it's like, you can't have someone read the Bible for you. Yep, right. You can't have someone pray for you and like have that all via osmosis. Like I can't exercise for your benefit. Like, but that's kind of the same thing here is it's just like you ask questions to get them to reflect on their position and then you let truth speak for itself because we don't get to all have our own truth because people have tried to destroy capital T truth, right? And if you have no, no capital T truth, everyone has their own facts. But in reality, there is only capital T truth that is undergirded by facts that are apparent and should be apparent to anybody that's, again, being intellectually honest. Well, was it you who mentioned this or was it somebody else I was listening? I'll give you credit is at the beginning, of, an it. R, at the beginning of a real conversation, it is the question, hey, if I present you, are you willing to change your perspective? If I present you with truth and you actually look at, are you willing to change your perspective? Yeah. yeah if you, if you were wrong, would you want to know it? That's yeah, it. That's yeah. something that Kyle says for sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, Frank, Frank Turek, if I could prove to you that Christianity was true, would you become a Christian? Yeah. Right. He also says it's just one beggar leading another beggar to the truth. 
And he also says that Jesus was political because he was dealing with political elites, which were essentially yeah. the Pharisees. I think the key to that, one, one slight tweak I'd recommend is when you're dealing with somebody, don't ask a question that gives them the ability to say yes or no, right? Ask them a how or a what question because they intimate, they have, it's like a judo move. They have to think and engage because they cannot give you a quick response. Well, another thing is if, if, if they give their response a great statement to keep things going is, tell me more about that. Yep. Yep. And so like, that's not a question. You've already asked the question. The question has established itself, but you have not been satisfied by their answer. And as opposed to saying, I'm not satisfied by your answer. You just say, tell me more about that. And then you're, you're asking clarifying questions. And then when you get into clarifying questions, you can start getting into different arguments and, and different sides of the same topic. But again, in all these scenarios, we're basically describing a scenario where you're in a dyadic communication with somebody because sometimes people will, will be very critical of my show. They're like, well, you're just so a matter of fact about these things. I was like, well, it's not a conversation. It's me hitting record and talking by myself. And how boring would it be if I hit record and for an hour not give an opinion? Yeah. Like, do you listen to me because you just want to hear me wax poetic about just random things and I don't end up somewhere? Like, I'm going to give you a defined opinion that's been well thought out, well thought out and well-researched. It's just my opinion. You can accept it or reject it, or you can move on and kind of go from there. But at the end of the day, like it is what it is. You have to either accept or reject it. Yeah. And, and if you're able to uh, summarize that person's position, because you've actually listened, you've shut the conversation down in your brain, you've listened to what they said, you've summarized it for them and you've stated it back to them. At that point, that person is probably willing to be influenced by your opinions. Zach, do you think any of this would work on our wives? Careful. Careful. No comment. Oh, man. Okay. Well, right. you have to comment. You're the one that brought it up. No, I'm asking. I'm wondering. I'm no, looking for help no, here. You're, you're not going to just throw that out at us and get us in trouble <laughs> and pretend like you're hovering over this table. You answer it. Never. I would never use this to actually change my wife's mind. She has great tell ideas. Me more. And, yeah. Can you tell, tell me more, more babe. Yeah, tell, yeah, me, tell me more, more about how comfortable it is sleeping on your couch at your house. Uh, <laughs> one thing I did want to talk about in this first section, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time here because I think by now most of us have, have kind of noticed this, but starting in verse 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For money is the root of all kinds of evil. Whoops, that's not exactly what it says. What it actually says is for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So I want to address this and talk about this a little bit. And no, we're not about to get into prosperity gospel land or any of those types of things. But there's the prosperity mindset, but then there's also the poverty mindset within Christendom where if you are a Christian and you have any means whatsoever, it's almost this communist socialistic mindset to where it's like, you must have taken advantage of somebody to get that. So you've got it. It's ill-gotten gain. You know, it's fruit of the poisonous tree or something like that. And so I like to, to, to go back here as a reminder that it's the love of money or the worship of money or the creation of the idol of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. It's not the root of all evil. It's all kinds of of evil, and, and, which is to say that there are a lot of different versions of evil that come specifically off of the idolizing of money. And one thing that I want to say, and then I want to just get y'all's random thoughts on this, is Christians need to stop expecting Christians to be poor. And I don't, again, I'm not getting into the prosperity side of things, but you know, I've talked to different Christian business owners that sell their products. And people will be like, well, you're a Christian, you should just give it away. And I'm like, you know what you should tell that person? You should say, I don't think you should be paid to do your job either. And so people hear, well, like with our show, when we ask for donations, they're like, well, why, why don't you just give this away for free? Why do we have to give you money? It's like, well, number one, you don't have to give me money. You're listening to me for free already. A very, 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 very small percentage of the people that listen to our show 
give any money to Undaunted Life. And that's fine. Uh, you know, we're going to be doing things in the future to provide even more value that'll, you know, potentially be behind a paywall and all things like that. But people get very, very nervous when pastors make money, when anybody makes money and does it above board. Like there are people that can take advantage of other people to make money. And there are people that will steal from the church ministry coffers to, you know, you know, build a bigger house or get a better Bentley or something like that. And that's not what we're talking about. But I just, I'm so over this mindset about Christians that, you know, every time you build an organization, it has to be a nonprofit because that's what Jesus would do. It's like, well, you know, we have examples from scripture of Jesus talking about people that are investing their money and being a good steward and all those different things. And I just don't think it's almost like we're intimidated by money because we read this wrong. We read this for money is the root of all evil. Like, no, no, no. It's your mindset about yeah. money and how you approach it. Well, desire, desire is a very strong word there too. Like I'm I greedy. I desire money. Like what, what is, what does God say about desire? Like if you, like God should be the desire of your heart. Like, and if money is the desire that be, then that becomes an idol. I mean, the early church had a lot of patrons who funded church houses. Like they, they had, they had church in houses who they were fully funded by business owners and you know that so the church didn't pay for anything but these these you can't make an argument that those wealthy people were not of the body of christ just because they had money and yeah i i agree with you there i think i think there is a line though and that's that's the there's it's not a line it's, it's gray because there's like there's pastors who make money clearly taking advantage of of some things and they're not making money on the up and up and it's like you could you could point to um what verse is it in, talks about uh, me as a means of gain. So verse five, when it talks about imagining that godliness is a means of gain, like there are clearly pastors out there that, do that. but yeah, I'd, Christians shouldn't just be poor because we're Christians. Uh, agreed. Okay. I've got three, three thoughts on this. Okay. So Kyle, I'm glad you stopped here. Okay. Number one, <laughs> desire to be rich. I think this is why when, when we hearken back to first Timothy three, and there are the qualifications for the overseers, it is, um, do not assign a lover of money as an overseer, right? Yep. So one, I think Paul's tying everything together. He's the master of run-on sentences and the master of um, hamburger messages, right? Yeah. First and back. Okay, number two, um, if we jump forward in the same passage, those who desire to be rich for the love of money is, all, is a root of all kinds of evils. But, verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides with us to everything to enjoy. 18, they are to do good, be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. He does not rebuke a rich person there. In, in fact, this is leadership to say, this is how you encourage a rich person to also do good, also be rich in good works and be generous and ready to share. Um, I, I had a conversation, I had coffee this week with a guy who he comes from, what could be, um, what could be interpreted as a very wealthy family? Um, he carries the family name, and he says, I, "I thought so many times in my life to change my name because when people see me, they automatically think that I was born on third base. When in all actuality, I was born in the dugout and I hit a triple. So, like, there is this perception of he, he's like, I'm not trying to desire to be rich. It just God blesses me. Number three." Um, sometimes when you run a business, Kyle, the fruit of that business is money, right? But it's the purpose of that fruit that really designs and drives um, what you do. Because I, I work with a lot of 
very efficient and effective and, and great business owners who understand, hey, look, the fruit of the business that I run is money. And here's what I do with that fruit. I serve my employees. I give away 30% of our, of our gross revenue. I, um, I make people better. I give, I serve, like this is what they do. So it, what it does is it drives them to actually run a better business so they can make more money so that they can give away more. They're not trying to do it all to, to, to build a bigger house or drive a nicer car, but they want to make a better business so they can make more money and actually give and serve more. And, and I think in a way, at times, if somebody is a good steward of what God has given them and, and they steward something small and God grows it and grows it and they continue to be a faithful steward, well, if they're pushing back darkness with everything that's under their little K kingdom, wouldn't God bless that to continue to grow their kingdom because ultimately he's growing his capital K kingdom through them? Well, I mean, what, what's, the, uh, what's the one with the talents, right, where he essentially just gives more to the one who's producing the most, which you, I'm sure you could take that all different directions, but at face value, I think it implies that God expects for us to be efficient with what we're given. Right. I think for the kingdom to advance, you need to have people that can demonstrate this ability to, to create resources for the kingdom in the face of this perception of what it means to be wealthy. Think about Jordan Peterson. He made a comment recently about people think that they want $10 million or $50 million. And he goes, really? Do you know what that means? Do you know what would have to contend with, with everybody coming at you and all the pressures and all the baggage that comes with that? People in that position have lots to deal with. And I think they're put in that position for a reason, and it's not to be villainized, it's needed, but it has to be done right. Well, I think it's, it's a base level skepticism of people with money to begin with that I think is kind of a, a knee-jerk thing to people because like, I didn't grow up in a family with a lot of money. Like We had everything we needed, and we had a lot of things that we wanted, but we certainly were not wealthy. And so when you would see wealthy people, there was a longing for some of the things that they had, but then as you get older and as you see how hard it is to make money, you're like, they had to have done something different because I'm working hard and I have this much and I don't even think they're working very hard and look at what they're doing. But again, we all, we always love to focus on our scorecard and we compare our scorecard to everybody else. And it's like, when you're looking at somebody, you're not looking at the back of their baseball card. Okay. Mm -hmm. You're not looking at their statistics. You're not looking at any of those types of things, but we will piecemeal together a viewpoint of a person or a family or a family name or a company based on the things that they have, yeah. whether that be the clothes that they're wearing, the car that they're driving, the house, the office, the, the bonus structure that they give, like a huge oil and gas company here, like it, uh, their bonuses that they give out to their employees went viral because, and again, they're already evil because they're oil and gas, right? And it like went viral and it's like, there are people saying that this company is bad because they're caring for their employees. They're right. taking from their excess right. and multiplying that out to people evenly, which I don't really agree with, but evenly distributing their gains to other people, which is directly blessing these people. Yeah. It's helping them do any number of things. Get out of debt, uh, you know, give money away to somebody me, else. Kyle. It didn't bless <clears throat> yeah. me, Kyle. It didn't bless me. That's the problem, well, right? That's the problem. What's that old saying? We judge our intentions. Uh, we judge our actions by our intention. We judge, judge others' actions by the outcome. Yeah. And I think we look at, our, at ourselves very gray. There's a lot of gray area. But then when we look outward, it's black or white. So if a pastor makes a bunch of money, he obviously did. So if somebody makes a lot of money, they obviously did something wrong. Like, so we, we put it into two distinct categories where in reality it's, there's a lot, there's a lot of gray well, out there. And Matt, we're like monkeys because it's yeah. like, uh, you know, preachers and sneakers, you know, blew up and have this, this big Instagram account. And they would constantly post 
you know, pictures of these pastors wearing these sneakers and then it would show a picture of the sneakers and how much they cost and all these types of things like that. And again, there were a lot of people that are wearing $2,000 Gucci belts and wearing this and wearing that, but they will, they love to point at those people wearing the, the rare Jordans, but they're not pointing at their pastor at their church that is wearing $900 custom made Italian dress shoes and a $2,000 tailored suit and all that. So technically it's worth less, but it's, it's, it's more normal because it's brown dress shoes and in a well-fitting suit and that type of thing. But it does affect people like me. Like I have a pair of Jordan threes of all the Jordans that have ever been made. That's my favorite. It took me about 30 years to pull the trigger on buying them for myself as a gift to myself. But I'm hesitant to wear them, especially if I'm speaking somewhere, because I don't want to end up on Preachers and Sneakers Instagram and somebody to think like, oh, that's what he's doing with all the donation money. It's like, before we took a dime, (laughs) before we took a dime in donations, I bought that for myself and my wife was literally like, Kyle, if I have to hear you talk about another year went by without you getting the pair of Jordans that you wish you had had when you were a little kid, I'm going to scream. But again... I don't get to say that to everybody that's just looking at the picture on Instagram. They just fill in the, the blanks of the story. Okay. Themselves. What's funny it's about true. preachers and spe- sneakers is, okay, think about it this way. Cause it's what you two are saying. Okay. Hey, we're going to you know what I'm going to do. I'm actually going to make a bunch of money on Instagram by pointing out other people that make money and spend it. How, yeah. how, like, like how hypocritical is yeah. that? You know what I mean? Like, hang on. I'm going to point out that you shouldn't make that much money for the, and buy those sneakers. Yet, I'm going to try to make as much money off of that as possible. Yeah, I don't think it started that way. I don't think there was a nefarious intention there. I think he started with good intentions because he was like, this kind of this seems off. But yeah, I, 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 point, I don't know that guy. I, point, I mean, I'm just saying like. Your point is, your point is well taken though, for sure. Because I, the, the guy who you, you talked about, um, you know, hey, a pastor makes a bunch of money. They must have done wrong. Somebody makes a bunch of money in their business. They must have done something wrong. But secretly inside of me, I'm hoping that I can make a bunch of money. Yeah. You know and what if I mean? I, and if I get it, I, like I did it all on the up and up. Right. Well, it's like more money, more problems. And then you're like, I would at least like to try, right? I would <laughs> yeah. at, least, at least like to try <laughs> to deal with those problems. Uh, and that's kind of really where our, where our mindset goes. So uh, the, the I, money, I, I want to, I just, I want to just uh, make a point here. Jordan threes are the best Jordans. 100%. Uh, so I just wanted to put that out there. Yeah. So, okay. You got a couple of other guys. Have you all ever had Jordans? I have never owned, I have never owned a no pair clue. of Jordans. Okay. But, like but like seriously, desired. when we were kids, like <laughs> when we were kids and like, you know, Jordans are like 200 bucks for a pair of Jordans. And when you're like nine and you're going to fit in them for like four months, like yeah. my parents would never let me have them. So I, I just kind of bled into adulthood having never well, owned a pair of logic, actual you Jordans. You see the logic that your parents were using too. Like, okay, that makes sense. But like when you were, when you were looking at Jordans, $200, in today's money, that's like $1.5 million. Yes. <laughs> like, that's how, and ladies and gentlemen, that is how inflation works. So um, one thing that I did want to get into with First uh, Timothy 6 is, of course, you know, we, we camped out there on the money side because, again, that is literally, you know, verse uh, 10 of chapter 6. That is probably the most misquoted verse, at least in the whole New Testament, if not the entire Bible. But verses 11 and 12 are, are, are pretty big, and I wanted to bring those out. But as for you, again, this is Timothy writing to, or Paul writing to Timothy. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. The thing that I I really like about that is when you read that list, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness, I am just overwhelmed at how impossible that seems. Mm. Like to, to try and check those 
six boxes all at the same time. Because like, I don't know if you've ever been, like when I say righteous, godly, faithful, loving, steadfast, and gentle, no one immediately comes to mind in my purview, in my world. Because I have an example with every one of those people that I would maybe think of, of times when they were not that. And so that, that's what I wrote down here in, in my margin is that that's really hard to do all these at the same time. My big takeaway there, again, Paul is specific in his language. He says pursue. And I think that is just like the over, overarching theme of the Bible, or one of them is we're not called to be those things because we can't, but we are to pursue those things because we have been invited to be those things. God says, I am holy, be holy because I am holy. That's an invitation. Like you can't be holy like I am, but like, I want you to pursue that because that is showing me that you are worshiping me. You are pursuing me. And so I, I, to me, that's that, that whole sentence hinges on that one word pursue. I agree. I agree. I mean, and that it's like, I wrote that down just as a reminder of a charge of a charge of an encouragement for me and for my family. Like I want to remember that and, and speak that over them and in them. And Hey guys, remember pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Like, Hey, let that be the, the, the rhythm of your life to pursue these things. He also doesn't, he doesn't say win the good fight. He says, fight it, like fight it. He's already won it. We already, we, we could turn to the end of the book. We know, we know the outcome. We're fighting from victory, right? But he says to fight anyway. He doesn't say win it because that's not on us either. We're just, we're just called to be in it. It's fight. not the outcome. It's the effort. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's the effort. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But you're given the, the full effort of mm-hmm. as if you didn't know the outcome. Right. Right. Yeah. I think that's right. Important. When, I think that's hard too. <laughs> it's like, right. wait, well, and that's, that's where cheap grace comes in, right? It's thing, ideas like that. Well, if, if we already knew the outcome, well, oh, do I really have to do all that stuff? That's not the point. One thing I saw as well in this section, and this is verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Now it keeps going into verse 14, but I want to stop there. Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, because there are segments of Christendom, uh, but specifically I thought of Muslims that say that Jesus never claimed to be God. He never did. Um, and when you look at, you know, the, uh, I'm trying to make sure I have my facts straight, but I'm pretty sure this is accurate. But when you look at the synoptic gospels and then you include John, the only place where it's like explicit, explicit, explicit is in John. And people like to kind of, kind of discredit John because it's a little bit more poetic. It's a little bit more ethereal, I guess, whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke kind of follow a similar uh, pattern. But even here in Paul's letters, this is showing that, and this is kind of getting into the Christian apologetics land. This is showing that in the first century, when they're writing these letters and going around and sharing the message of Jesus, they didn't think that he didn't rise from the dead. And they certainly didn't think that he never claimed to be God because the apologetic from atheists or from, you know, Christians that are just trying to be like new agey. They're like, Oh, that, you know, the deity of, of Jesus that was decided like three, four, 500 years after he walked the earth. This is a figment of our imagination. This is the outgrowth of myth that becomes fact, but you can go right here to that one little line. That's easy to miss and say, no, 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 he's not giving that to you because made the good confession. The good confession was before Pontius Pilate that he was indeed the king of the Jews and the son of God. Knowing it would cost him his, his earthly life, 
He right. said, I am the son of God. I because am. otherwise, why would they have killed him? Right. Like that's the thing well, is a lot of people point out, I think Frank Turk pointed out, it's like, why would they have killed yeah. him and executed him? He, if he didn't claim to do something or claim to be something that would be considered to be blasphemous by the Jewish Sanhedrin. Well, and go back to Titus Kennedy, because you asked him this question specifically. And he said, look, nobody back then, including Roman documents and everybody else at the time, didn't believe that he was actually crucified. The Romans were successful in crucifying him. And everybody in the time believed that he was dead. There you go. I mean, and and that's backed up from several different areas. And he clearly claimed it through the gospel. And what's even more powerful about the Bible is that that was all predicted 700 years before it happened. And that was explicit. So it self-proves. And then you can prove it from outside of the Bible. I mean, this this is kind of what got me started eventually down this path is when you're outside looking in, can you form a reasonable basis for this? I came to Christ. From, from reading the Bible, but I came to genuine faith by a series of reasoning. And that was a big part of it. And there's a scientific basis for that also in Turks all over that. Well, and the thing for you is, is that's, a good, that's a good kind of, I guess, expose on how, how you worship. Because some people worship through their emotions and feelings. And you know, that's where they really experience God. Other people experience God through intellect and arguments and reasoning. And that's you know, where Christian apologetics makes a, a big difference for people. I would lean towards people kind of leaning on the Christian apologetic side of things because when you're having an argument with somebody, it's really hard to convince them to feel the way that you feel. But you can bring people to the table and say, here are the facts that I'm going to lay out for you. Are they compelling enough for you to believe them? When you're going through a storm and you're, and you're maturing, and as an example, you're, you're wavering, when you have to confront this scientific fact that everything came from nothing and you can walk through sort of how that happened and people have opinions, but the fact is that it came from nothing, um, that's objectively shown. So what's your answer for that otherwise? And when you're going through a storm and you look at that, it's just a faith-building rock that you can stand on and then you come back and you say, well, what does it say and what should I do and things like that. It, which it, I absolutely love because, okay, I'm more of a logical than emotional guy. And what I find often, often, Kyle, is, is what you're talking about is oftentimes based on their position and gifting and, and talents and skills, pastors are typically more emotional or feels-based than they are logic-based, right? Mm-hmm. And so I always appreciate when a pastor can balance between the two. Hey, I can appeal to the logic of Jesus Christ and the rational, and let's look at what actually happened and how it happened and why it happened. And then let's look at the faith lesson there of what it calls me to do in light of that truth. Yeah, that was what was most difficult for me is I I live in a very scientific, practical, tangible world. And when you bring, when you introduce this and you have conversations with people about that, you kind of have to be able to explain yourself a little. Well, and also I think our emotions are liars and we've got to preach the gospel to our, we've got to preach the truth to our emotions. Like our emotions, like they can be true in a moment. I'm angry now, but is that, is that the truth tomorrow? And if that, if my, I used to be, I used to be someone that was very, very much like guided by my emotions, whether good or bad. And even in, even in a worship sense, like I would seek after the things that made me feel good in church services. And I, like, I, I was, if I, if it wasn't there 15 years ago, if I'd have walked into a church like Alistair Begg or, Sinclair Ferguson, John MacArthur, any of those guys that preach line by line, I've been like, what? what am I I'm out. But then, but then, then I, then I opened my Bible and it was like, okay, this is logical as well. I mean, it can be emotional because you should, you should be brought to your knees 
because of the depravity of your soul. You should be emotional that the just payment for my sin is to spend eternal damnation in hell. And I, you should become emotional because that's not the reality. But your emotions can also be liars, and we've got to preach the truth to this. Yeah, some of the worst advice you could possibly give somebody is follow your heart. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, what exactly 100%. do you mean? 100%. My heart will take me to Taco Bell. Like, uh, my heart will not have me do anything else. And so that, that's, again, when, when I, whenever, you, <clears throat> whenever you operate on this ethic of my feelings, and then you start getting into this modern, uh, what is it, moral therapeutic deism to where it's like, whatever makes me feel good is right. And mm-hmm. it's like, now there's a lot of things that can make you feel good in the moment. That's why I talk about with certain churches that give you spiritual Skittles. Skittles taste amazing. They'll also kill you if you only eat those, right? And so at some point you have to graduate to milk and meat and more tangible, hearty things. And, you know, we don't really get that encouragement uh, much areas of our life. Uh, we're running up against time here. So to finish up First Timothy 6, I do want to uh, go to verses 17, 18, and 19, because there's really good word here to kind of wrap up our thoughts on First Timothy. Um, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of of that which is truly life. The words there that that stick out to me is to be rich in good works. Because you go from verse 10, talking about the, the love of money being the root of all evil. And here we are, we're basically given a, an argument, an apologetic for what it means to be rich and to be rich in good works in the things that you're doing. Now, obviously, as we talked about on previous episodes, you can't take this one scripture out and say, that's my scripture. All right, that's my life verse. I'm going to be rich in good works because now you're going to have a works-based legalistic uh, approach to, to Christianity. And that's not good either. But knowing the whole story of the gospel and the entire story of the New Testament, to be rich in good works, like that's a really good thing to, to operate on moving forward. Right, because that builds, I mean, verse 19 is, uh, that builds a good foundation for the future that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And, and what is that? Well, I believe that's the godliness that he has been talking about for the rest of the chapter and really throughout the entire book of First Timothy is pursue godliness, pursue reverence and reflection and, and I think pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfast, and gentleness, right? That is truly life. Yeah, I love the end. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent uh, babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. So pursue what you have, but don't, don't do things that are just unnecessarily creating conflict. Uh, speak the love and truth, try to connect with people, try to hear them, and uh, you know, try to engage with them. I think I like that verse too, because I think Paul's bringing it back again, like, hey, you are a, you are a leader of a church. This is not yours. Mm-hmm. This is a deposit that's been entrusted to you. All these things that I've just said to you in this letter, you're going to have to answer for those. You're going to have to give that deposit back, and you're going to have to give an account for every line-by-line s- expenditure. That has that that comes out of your account. So guard that. I I, I think when we talk about pastors, that, that you don't you don't go into that flippantly. And I think I think as a capital C church, we as the body don't do a good enough job of of calling our pastors to the mat. 
and saying, I don't think that you're stewarding this, or I think you're, you're in error here. And I think some of that goes back to, you can't like that, that whole attitude of you can't touch the anointed. And I think that's something that I personally struggle with, even in my own church. Like I don't, there's, there's been things that I, that I'm uncomfortable with. I don't think are biblical and I don't think we should be doing. Ask me if I wrote an email, ask me if I said anything to somebody besides my wife. I didn't. And I've got, I've got to deal with that. I've got to, I've got to live with that. And so I think that's a, that's a, that's a struggle for a lot of people too, though. So. But I think as we look at the entirety, because we're wrapping up First Timothy here, we have to remember that this is one letter mm-hmm. that we broke up later, and that this is a minor narrative inside the major narrative of Paul's writings. And so for me specifically, this is a very unique thing because he's normally writing to a church in a particular area at a particular time. But here he is writing to his people, as we said in the first episode when we talked about it in First Timothy 1. He's writing a letter individually to somebody that he knew was going to be spread about. And so it's like, are you ever talking to somebody and you know other people are listening? And so the message is for the person you're talking to, but they're also for the people that you know are listening. And that's just a really good notion to know that he is telling Timothy, his people, like almost communicating. I know my time's going to be up, but you know, you're separated from me enough in age to where your time is going to go after me. And I want you to be able to stand on the shoulders of giants here. Because think about it, we can, in a weekend, read all of the works of somebody that spent their entire adult life, 50 years, pouring into research to put this book together that we could read in a couple of days. But now we can stand on the shoulders of that person and help people in that unique and interesting way. So just just for me, like I, I loved being able to dig through this letter because it's like one day whenever I'm when I have a pupil like this and in this type of a context, whatever that looks like, I would hope I would be able to give him these large lessons that you can use kind of from a 30,000 foot view, but also how we can operate on the ground level as well. What are y'all's thoughts overall on first Timothy? Oh, I mean, it is a, uh, it's a deep well of knowledge, wisdom, and I think encouraged or discouraged behavior. I think it is a deep well that we can, that we can pull from, over and over in various stages of life. And practical application. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I think for me, that's the big one. You know, you can, you can read through the Bible and there's all these amazing stories and everything, but in some ways, I think chapters like this that are extremely practical just undergird the truth of, of, of the Bible. To, to me, it's powerful. Absolutely. It has uh, tendrils that can extend into all different areas, but guys, there's more that we can say on First Timothy, but we're going to have to leave it there. But come back next Sunday where we are going to dig into And you're going to have to find out what book we're going to be digging into next Sunday, guys. It'll be a little bit of a surprise for you, but I promise you will not be disappointed. But make sure you come back next week so you can check that out. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So I mention this every time. We have a donation button on our website. That is how we're able to get this content to you guys. Everything we do costs money. We need you guys to hop on board to support the content that we're creating so that we can equip men all around the globe to push back darkness. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, 
We want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Cutting the Tides, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs>